After today, we'll be taking a three-week break from our uh, series in Kings. Next week will be Easter, of course, and then I'll be on holiday for two weeks after that. So this is going to be our last look at Kings for a little while. But we're turning this morning to 2 Kings chapter 6. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 373, or in the larger print Bibles, 574. Second Kings chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 down to verse 23. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole, and let us build a place there for us to meet. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied, and he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, no, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there. And made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. And the man reached out his hand and took it. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel... Tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. 
After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is God's word. There's quite an old book called Your God is Too Small. Now, I haven't read the book, but I think the title is great because it challenges us not to go and look for a different God, but to see more of the greatness of the one true God. When we recognize that our view of God is too small, that enlarges us, drives us to enlarge our vision of God. And that's what will happen if you and I take this passage seriously. So as we look at this together, let's ask ourselves, is your God too small? Do you and I have too small a view of our God? There are four sections to this, and each section challenges us to widen and deepen our understanding of God. And there's nothing more invigorating and more calming than pausing to see more of God. John Ortberg says, Nothing can do us more good than to consider God and how good he is and how wonderful it is to be alive and to be a friend of such a being. That's what this passage can help us with. Let's remember the context. Israel at this time in history is a spiritual corpse. The people of Israel are given over to false worship. They are trusting in idols that cannot hear them and cannot save them. But in the midst of that spiritual death, we've seen God is bringing life. There are these small communities scattered around Israel. They're called companies of the prophets. These are people faithful to the Lord. They're living for the Lord in a place that has forsaken the Lord. So far as life in Israel goes, these people are on the edges of things. They're not mainstream. But as far as God is concerned, these people are right at the center of things. Idol-worshipping Israel might hardly notice these men and women. But as far as heaven is concerned, these people are where the action is. These people are big news in heaven. And in their situation, these faithful men and women are learning about the greatness and power of their God, who is also our God. He is the God who restores the losses of his servants. He is the God who hears everything. He is the God who surrounds his servants with angel armies. And he's the God who prepares a feast 
for his enemies. So first of all, in verses 1 to 7, the living God is the God who restores the losses of his servants. The situation we're joining at the start of chapter 6 is that whatever kind of house or maybe lodge the company of the prophets have been using, they have outgrown it. There's a need for something bigger. So the context here is service for God. These people are building a place where they can meet with Elisha and worship God. And in the midst of working to build that bigger place, one of them loses a borrowed axe head in the water. And he gets terribly, terribly upset about it. And as you and I listen to this, maybe our reaction is this guy is overreacting. Why doesn't he just go and buy a new one? Why make a scene about it and put Elisha on the case? Well, to understand why losing this axe head was a major incident, we need to grasp how valuable iron was at this time. Not too long before this, the entire Israelite army had only two swords between them. Iron was that rare of a commodity. Producing iron tools and iron weapons was a fairly new technology. So one commentator says, iron implements would have been tremendously expensive. Losing a borrowed axe head then would be comparable to wrecking a borrowed car today. So here's the situation of this man from the company of the prophets. Not only has he given up a lot to join the company of the prophets in the first place, now in the course of working to see worship of the Lord grow in Israel, this man has suffered a significant loss. And when we see things from that perspective, we can understand why he cries out to Elisha in verse 5, Oh no, my Lord. Oh no, indeed. In the course of being faithful to God, this man has lost a lot. And so this miraculous return of the axe head is not just a frivolous party trick. It's a restoration of a very significant loss. And that helps us see how this might relate to us. The point of the connection is not whether it's wise to borrow tools. The point of connection is not whether God will make your chainsaw float if you drop it in the pond. The point of connection is some of you will suffer loss as you seek to live for God and serve him faithfully. There will be a cost to your faithfulness. It might be the loss of a friendship, maybe a very significant friendship, if that other person will not join you in living for God. The cost for you might be a loss of income. Sometimes living by biblical principles can cost you at work. There are a whole lot of ways you can suffer loss for the kingdom of God. And what you and I need to know is this. Your Father in heaven is not unconcerned about your losses. 
He knows about them and he will restore those losses. How do I know that? Well, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. The context of the words we're about to read, the context is that Peter has just raised this very issue with Jesus. Peter said, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And then Mark tells us, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, Jesus says, I know what it has cost you to follow me. It's cost you persecution and loss. But I promise, Jesus says, not just to restore as much as you have lost, but to restore it with interest. A hundred times as much. That's in this life. And in the future, there's eternal life. So Jesus says, what is gained will far outweigh what is lost. And this is not about walking away and leaving stuff just for the sake of it. This is about what one writer calls deprivation as a result of discipleship. It's about loss that comes our way in the course of following Jesus. That deprivation will be compensated for. And clearly, Jesus is not saying, if your mother rejects you because you follow me, I'll give you a hundred literal mothers to replace her. His point is, in some way, I will give you more than you lost. It may well be through the love and support of other Christians. Those people may become more of a family to you than your physical family ever was. But whatever form it takes, Jesus says, what you can count on is that when you live for me, you will not lose out. You will gain. So if you thought God was a miser, if you thought he was a God who demanded everything and ignored your losses, that is not the God of the Bible. Our God is the God who restores the losses of his servants. Whatever you have lost for his sake, he knows about it. And in him you will find much, much more than you've lost. Back in 2 Kings 6, we move from the floating axe head at the Jordan River right into the middle of an international war. It's the Arameans again. At this point in history, the Arameans really have it in for Israel. And verse 8 says, The king of Aram was at war with Israel, 
After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked in the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. None of us, my lord, the king said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. It's not hard to see why this situation would enrage the king of Aram. You and I don't like the fact that somebody somewhere is reading all of our emails. But we know it's probably true. We don't like the fact that somebody somewhere is tracking every website we use. So imagine the frustration of fighting an enemy who hears every word you say in private. And in this case, the enemy who's listening in to the king of Aram's secret conversations is not the king of Israel. It's the God of Israel. That's where Elisha is getting his insights from. Now, Israel is not following God. But in his purposes, God is protecting Israel for now. And that means the king of Aram hasn't got a chance. The God he's fighting is the God who hears everything. That truth is very bad news if you're opposing God. And it's very good news if you're serving God. And what we read here in 2 Kings 6 is not a one-off. It's not as if God set up a divine surveillance system just for this one war between Aram and Israel. Jesus said, God never misses a thing. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the air in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Very bad news if you're an enemy of God. But very good news if you're serving God. God knows the plans of his enemies. And he knows how to thwart them. God knows the false accusations that are brought against God's faithful servants. He knows the unjust things that are said. None of it ever goes unheard by God. And none of it will go unaccounted for. The God who hears everything will deal with what he hears. He will put things right. In the end, every lie will be exposed. Every hidden scheme will be brought to light. We have God's word on that. And it gives us the reassurance his enemies cannot succeed. And their evil will not be ignored. We have more reassurance of that in the verses that follow. Because this God who hears everything is also the God who surrounds his servants with the angel armies. 
when the king of Aram learns that Elisha is the one giving all his maneuvers away, he decides the best thing to do is go and capture Elisha. So he sends, we're told, a strong force of horses and chariots to Dothan. That's where Elisha is staying. And during the night, this strong force surrounds the city. And verse 15 tells us, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. We heard a similar, oh no, my Lord, from the guy who lost his axe head back in verse 5. And this time too, we can understand the reaction. Elisha has been messing around with an international superpower and they've come to get him. But Elisha is not going into fits about this. And the reason is, Elisha can see more than his servant can. Look again at verse 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. So the picture here is that the city is surrounded with Arameans, but between Elisha and those Arameans, there's an angel army circled round the man of God and his servant. And that angel army has not just appeared on the scene. They've been there. It's just that the servant couldn't see them until now. The servant was terrified by the strong force of Arameans he could see. But he's being protected by a much stronger force of angels he couldn't see. So what is this? Is this a one-off thing God did? Because this was some kind of one-off situation. No, according to the Bible, this incident in Dothan just pulls back the curtain on a reality that is constant. The theologian called R.C. Sproul says, if we are going to get the Bible's message We have to understand that the reality in which we live contains much more than meets the eye. And he goes on to explain it by saying this. It's quite a long quote, but I think it's helpful. He says, that should not be too much of a stretch for us, living this side of the invention of the telescope, on this side of the invention of the microscope, Because the scientific revolution of the modern era has increased and enhanced our perception of reality by means of instruments that enable us to see things that cannot be seen with the naked eye. The Copernican revolution was a revolution in science that was provoked by a sudden ability to see what previously was unseen. If that revolution took place with the invention of the telescope, how much greater is the revolution that has taken place with the microscope? There are millions of real entities in the air around each of us 
And if we could see them with the naked eye, the sight would probably strike terror into our souls. But fortunately for us, we go along our merry ways, completely oblivious to the myriads of microbes that have the capacity to kill us. The reality in which we live contains much more than meets the eye. And what the Bible tells us, what the Bible insists on, is that there is more than microbes in the air around us. There are spiritual realities that we cannot see. The Bible simply takes that as a given. There are demons, yes, and much more relevant for God's people, there are angel armies assigned to fight for us. Did Jesus believe that? Well, listen to what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night he was betrayed, he was about to be arrested, and he said to his followers as they panicked, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? In other words, Peter, James, and John, and all the rest of you, You're in a panic right now. You think this situation is out of control. But if only you could see it. There are legions of angels standing by at this very moment. Peter, you think your sword is the only thing we have to defend us. But if you could see the horses and chariots of fire all around us, you wouldn't be in a panic anymore. Now, on that occasion, Jesus went on to say, I'm not calling on those angels. I am going to the cross tonight because that's what I came to do. But the point is, Jesus was not powerless in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was not abandoned or alone. Even when his disciples fled away into the night, each one of them, there were angel armies standing by. The Bible tells us the reality we live in is much fuller and much deeper than what we can see with our naked eye. And as Sproul says, that should make sense to us, people who live after the invention of the microscope. We don't disbelieve in microbes just because we can't see them. And when our Savior who rose from the dead tells us there are spiritual beings all around, why would we doubt him? The God who rules this world is fully equipped to rule it. So it doesn't matter when Elisha and his servant face a strong force of Arameans. The Arameans are still outnumbered. It doesn't matter that the church of Jesus Christ is small in some parts of the world. Those who are with the church are still more than those who are against the church. The book of Hebrews says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? 
That means if you belong to Jesus, you are never in the minority. The whole world could stand against you and you'd still be on the stronger side. Now, if you and I understand this, it is not going to magically remove all our problems. Of course not. But it does open up a whole new perspective on our problems, doesn't it? It tells us no situation is ever hopeless. No service for God is ever a lost cause. No opposition to the gospel is overwhelming opposition. Yes, in God's wisdom, he will sometimes allow minor victories to the enemy. Just as in the night Jesus was crucified, those legions of angels held their fire. Because in God's wisdom, the cross had to happen. So the fact that there are angels standing by, that doesn't mean you and I will be delivered from every pain and every trial. But can you see, the fact that there are angels means we never have reason to despair. Those who are with us are always more than those who are against us. No enemy can ever take a step more than God allows him to take. No trial can come on us unless God in his wisdom allows it. And that means no trial is ever pointless. We will never be in a situation where we can say, God's been taken by surprise here. The enemy's got the better of him this time. That will never happen. The Bible tells us often we will not understand what happens in our lives. But we can be certain nothing will ever outflank God. No enemy is ever going to outmaneuver him. And when you find yourself forgetting that in the middle of life, remember this glimpse of ultimate reality we're given here in 2 Kings 6. The angel armies that are always there surrounding God's people. Remember the reality you see with your eyes is only part of the picture. The part you cannot see most of the time is the unfailing presence and power of your God. Well, finally in this passage, and maybe the most striking of all, our God is the God who prepares a feast for his enemies. As we've looked at Elisha's life, we've noticed he is God's representative at this point in time. God is acting through Elisha. So what happens next in this passage, it's not just a reflection of Elisha's character. We are seeing God's character. After the servant's eyes are opened to see angel armies, Elisha then prays again, and the Aramean's eyes are blinded. Elisha steps forward and he leads them the 12 miles from Dothan to the king's palace in Samaria. 
When their eyes are opened again, these men have got to realize they are toast. Who would turn down a sweet opportunity like this? To wipe out the crack troops of Aram. And that is exactly what the king of Israel wants to do. He's like a little boy talking to Elijah. Shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But look again at Elisha's response in verse 22. Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. These enemies deserve death. But through Elisha, God provides them with a feast. And there's no explanation for this. But the outcome of it is, these particular enemies receive generosity and kindness, and they are changed. They leave as friends. The bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now that does not mean the war is over. But apparently, these enemies are not enemies anymore. And the change came about because they received a welcome they could never have expected or deserved. They deserved the sword of judgment. And instead, they found a feast spread before them. And once again, this incident in two kings is not a freak occurrence. This is not out of character for the living God. This is an insight into the core of God's character. He's the God who prepares a feast for his enemies. God has given the church a feast to celebrate. We're to celebrate that feast until the Lord returns. We call it the Lord's Supper. And what does that supper symbolize? Well, the book of Romans tells us the answer. When we gather around the bread and wine, we're celebrating the fact that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. The feast God prepared for us is the most expensive feast ever. It was prepared at the cost of the death of God's only son. And in case we think, well, a piece of bread and a mouthful of wine isn't much of a feast. The New Testament tells us those are just symbols of greater things. In one sense, they're symbols of what God has done. He's done what was necessary so we could escape the sword of judgment and be welcomed as his friends. But the bread and wine are also symbols that point us forward, the Bible says. They point us to an eternal feast in God's presence. It's described at the end of the Bible. And every single person at that feast will have one thing in common with everybody else. We will all be former enemies of God who have been welcomed by his kindness and his grace. 
None of us will deserve to be there. But we will belong. Because our God loves to welcome enemies and turn them into friends. So as we close our time looking at these verses, let's ask ourselves this question. Is my God too small? Is my view of him too small? Have I been underestimating God's greatness and God's power? Have I been worried that somehow maybe I'll lose out if I live for him? Have I forgotten that he hears and sees everything? Nothing at all is hidden from him. Do I need to stop and consider the unseen realities that surround me every day? The angel armies that mean I'm always in the majority as a follower of God. And do I need to remember and celebrate the kindness and generosity of our God? The God who died for his enemies and now welcomes us to an eternal feast. In his presence. That's our God. Let's praise him as we sing together. Jesus thank you. And then a song about the feast God invites us to. The trumpets sound. The angels sing.